Diasporas and the Media Clara Law's critically acclaimed 1996 film Floating Life provides some of the key motifs of the contemporary phenomenon of diaspora, and so has inspired the title of this book. Shot in Cantonese with English subtitles, Floating Life was the first feature film in Australia to be made in a language other than English. We adapt Clara Law's title for this book with her kind permission. In Law's narrative of displacement, members of a Hong Kong family have to come to terms with their dispersal into Australia and Europe, and the consequent experience of deterritorialization, the psychological and cultural dislocation of making a home in alien host lands. While a woman goes into total social withdrawal for fear of the world outside, her parents wonder how their prayers to their ancestors will ever find their way back to Hong Kong. The film traumatizes the literal dislocation of cultural culture experienced by more and more people in the era of globalization, the archetypal late modern condition. The concept of diaspora can be usefully applied to understanding many of the major population movements of this century and the complex processes of the maintenance and negotiation of cultural identity which go along with them. Significantly, the extent of population movements of recent history can lay claim to beginning to break down the mutual identification between nation and culture, which previously was asserted to exist in classical accounts of nationalism and the modern nation-state. Consider mass migration from the developing world to the richer countries, such as Latin Americans in the United States, Caribbeans and South Asians in Britain, Turkish and North African, Gustar Bater in Europe, the resettlement in several countries of millions of refugees from Iran, Vietnam, Cambodia, and the former Eastern Bloc, the declaration of multiculturalism as a social policy reality for Australia and Canada. If we take into account other categories of people living more or less permanently outside their countries of origin, such as business expatriates, foreign students, and academics, retirees, and even long-term cultural tourists, it is clear to see that the traditional national culture of many major nations no longer fits, if it ever really did, substantial proportions of the people who now actually inhabit the nation. Rather, these people's cultural horizons are turned toward those they see as their kind in other nations, and possibly to their nation of origin, but also to the challenges of negotiating a place in the host culture. It is not just the flows of the people themselves that are involved, but the whole continuous circulation of people, money, goods, and information, comprising the transnational migrant and refugee and other circuits. In particular, flows of communication media services and contents are an integral part of what we are trying to pin down about the contemporary world when we use that buzzword of our age, globalization. Along with the new flow patterns of media and people he calls mediascapes and ethnoscapes, 
Arjun Apadurai, in his influential analysis, also lists flows of technologies, capital, and ideas as constituting the current era. Importantly, he sees all these flows as disjunctive. They are occurring together, but in unsystematically related ways. For example, whereas flows of people often have tended to be from what the world systems theorists call the periphery, or developing world, and toward the center, or metropolitan nations, media flows historically have traveled in the other direction. More recently, however, there have been media flows which have developed from within centers of the periphery, such as Hong Kong, Mumbai, Mexico City, Sydney, Toronto, or Cairo, which are not only thus breaking down the center-periphery distinction itself, but beginning to define new kinds of world region. These include geolinguistic regions, that is, regions across which linguistic and cultural similarities are at least as important as geographical proximity has been in forming world regions in the past. The media space of a diaspora tends to be of this kind, to the extent that it is spread throughout several of the national markets, which have been the territorial unit for international media distribution in the past. The advent of quite particular technologies, notably international satellite television transmission, but also the humble video, have been instrumental in the fostering of such international niche markets, or global narrowcasting. At the upper socioeconomic end, business executives can check into any international hotel in the world and expect to watch CNN. At several points on the same continuum, members of diasporic groups can be dispersed widely, even into remote locations, but still pick up news from home on a satellite dish or cable in those places where they are more concentrated, or in cases where homeland news and information transmission is underdeveloped, suppressed, or radically contested. They may access video letters, websites, or special delivery orders flown in on a regular basis. Alternatively, they might rent a movie or popular television series, which has come to their local store along the fine capillaries of distribution which emanate from their place of ethnic origin, or even from one of the new centers of diasporic media production now springing up in the West. The purpose of this book is to trace the cultural significance of such global flows of audiovisual media for actually existing diasporas. This objective is pursued in the context of a number of basic theoretical paradigm shifts in sociology, population studies, and communication, media and cultural studies, to which the book is intended to contribute from a number of perspectives. From a social problem or welfare conception of the migrant, to an appreciation of cultural difference, from a view of the media as an imposed force to recognition of audience activity and selectiveness, and from an essentialist or heritage to a more dynamic, adaptive model of culture. Migrancy as agency. 
First, let's examine the image of the migrant and the settlement process. Representations of the migrant as a cultural victim have become familiar in both the humanities and social sciences over the decades since the end of World War II, during which ever greater numbers and categories of people have, for different kinds of reasons, left their cultural homelands to settle elsewhere. Only more recently has attention been given to migration as a complex process of cultural maintenance and negotiation, or resistance and adaptation. With this, attention has finally come an appreciation of the range of cultural border crossings achieved by many of the diasporas as they travel across major civilizational divides. And with it has come a new sense of what cosmopolitanism might mean now, beyond those specifically European or imperial sensibilities of the past fashioned within the grid of Western high culture. Of particular interest in this book is how diasporas make use of communications media in these dialectical processes, and how certain of the media used are thus able to create markets out of dislocated peoples, even as the diasporas redefine their cultural identities in hybrid terms, the transcendence of the dichotomy of home and host. This is not to join in the fashionable postmodernist celebration of hybridity for its own sake. Indeed, the range of actually existing diasporas studied in this book defeats any singular grid of understanding. The Chinese are part of a great diaspora which dates in Australia from the 1840s, one which is extensively cosmopolitan and lifestyle, education, and business-oriented, and which cannot be understood in terms of the liminality of recent displacement. The Vietnamese and Fiji Indian diasporas, on the other hand, are much more recent and were precipitated by direct political domination and, at least in the case of the Vietnamese, maintain an official public face as political refugees. The Thais are very recent immigrants. The reasons that have impelled movement are neither exile nor predominantly business. So the case studies in this book move around foci on the unfinished, parlous, unstable path of cultural bifocality, which can be a source of much psychic pain. As much as a condition of celebration, of successful resistance and assertion, or an achieved cosmopolitanism that may render such stances of historical value only. We seek to help shift the paradigm away from seeing the cultural adjustments of migration in dichotomous assimilationist terms. In the corresponding policy discourse, adjustment too often has been assumed to be a problem of helping the unfortunate migrant to adapt to the cliched dilemma of two worlds, even in the more benign multiculturalist version, which encourages migrants to retain their cultural differences at the same time as they assimilate to the language and the law of the host. It might be noted in passing at this point, as we shall return to it, that this is the version which has become institutionalized over the last two decades in Australia. The same period that has seen the term multiculturalism become associated with oppositional demands for social change and pr- pluralism from and on behalf of the major minorities, 
Rather than a project of the nation state itself, in several other countries, including the United States and Britain. Using media. Once again, without lurching from one extreme to the other, there is a second paradigm shift in process which we want this book to give a push to. This is the shift from the power of texts to the power of audiences and readers to shape meaning and use of the media. This shift is a welcome one, but media and cultural studies moves in factor moves to factor in consumption and use have rarely concentrated on cross-cultural scenarios. On the other hand, treatments of diasporic identity have concentrated on issues of representation by mainstream media of ethnic and racial identities. Not surprisingly, the conclusions reached in the numerous studies of this kind tend to be that Western mass media operate as prime filters of a hegemonic discourse discourse othering minority cultures and identities. Important and necessary as these researches are, they are not sufficient to understand the productive construction of new hybrid identities and cultures by the active processes simultaneously of maintenance and negotiation of an original home and a newly acquired host culture. As the field of international media studies has begun to draw theoretical inspiration from cultural studies accounts of diasporic identity, it has begun to address media use with studies of media and communications use amongst diasporic communities in Europe. A closely related angle on this shift is to consider the strength and manner in which media can be assumed to exert influence over audiences. Since the demise of the dominant ideology thesis of the 1980s, with its implicit hypothesis of strong media effects, being imposed on relatively passive audiences, there has been the not uncontested rise of an alternative conception of the active audience, accompanied by new postmodernist theories of decentered individual subjectivities. Taken to its most absurd conclusion, this new perspective would suggest that the media carries so many different meanings for so many different people that the once-assumed social impact of media messages is dissipated. However, we do not have to go that far to recognize that there are many ways in which audiences actively seek out their own media experiences, assert their preferences, and critically interact with each other, as well as with the media contents that they choose. Adaptive Culture The third question is one of culture, one of the two or three most complicated words in the English language, and now more problematic than ever. While the textbook anthropological definition of culture as a whole way of life, usually of a national society, became the common wisdom both inside and outside of academia during the 1980s, the notion came under attack within anthropology itself. Anthropologists recognized that the unity of the cultures which they studied was their own construction, something made rather than found. As the impact of globalization has been felt 
right across the social sciences and humanities, and especially as the formerly assumed autonomy of the nation-state has been challenged by globalizing forces, there has been a more general reassessment of the assumption that we can meaningfully think of a culture as the distinct and separate way of life of a given people who occupy a particular territory on the globe, as in, for example, Australian culture. Indeed, for some time, the idea of each nation-state having its corresponding national culture had been eclipsed by the growing perception that national cultures are created in their own image by the dominant hegemonic groups in society. All of these developments have been calling for a redefinition of culture. The former orthodox view was that each society has a culture which it perpetuates and which perpetuates it through being passed on to each individual member. This had both consensus, functionalist, and conflict variants, which, regardless of their fundamental differences, both took culture or the dominant ideology as a thing, a kind of complexly structured essence binding society together. This could be called the quantum view of culture, as if culture is something which societies strategically allocate to their individual subjects, albeit on a differentiated basis. In this view, personal identity is a function of cultural membership. Every individual has a culture, or some culture, although they can lose, lose it if it is not maintained. Furthermore, at least in the conflict versions, not all cultures are equal. Stronger cultures can dominate or marginalize weaker ones, as in the discourse of cultural imperialism. It is implied that cultures are clearly demarcated from each other, almost as if they have mass and occupy space, or at least that they are linked to place in much the same way as nation-states mark off their territories from each other with borders. Indeed, the assumption lingers that nation and culture are co-determinous. This quantum conception deserves to be criticized simply for the static and reified view of culture which it offers, not to mention its lack of relevance to a world of people on the move across increasingly porous national borders. In such a world, individual cultural identities become decentered through the same process that causes national cultures to lose their hegemony. Jan Nutterveen Pieters argues that the older territorial conception of culture, which he calls culture one, needs to be set against a more adaptive conception of culture, culture two, which recognizes the breadth variety and fluidity of social relations in translocal culture. This broader view takes account of the phenomenon of cultural fusion, variously conceptualized by others as the emergence of third cultures, or creolization, though all of these refer to the innovative collective responses which real people can and do make when having to negotiate between one culture and another. Repudiating any sense of culture as a closed, impermeable, and unified object, 
In rejecting the view that cultural identity is an ideal fixed condition which individuals seek to preserve, Stuart Hall has also argued that cultures never remain static, pure, and true to their origin, particularly in the process of diaspora. Diasporic culture in this new perspective is thus the product of the constantly configuring process which occurs when immigrant or otherwise displaced cultures selectively adapt to host cultures, intermingling and evolving to form a regenerative new culture, a culture related to but yet distinct from both the original home and host cultures. The master metaphor for such cultural adaptiveness and innovation is hybridity, which, like the concepts of culture, diaspora, and broadcasting, is also based on organic growth and transformation in nature. The theorization of hybridity is found in some lines of work from Latin America, where cultural syncretism has long been institutionalized in both national and subordinate cultures. But most often, it is the fashionable wing of post-colonial theory, and particularly the work of Homi Baba, which are cited. Baba views hybridity as the product of what he calls cultural translation, in which the hybrid subject negotiates cultural difference in a performative interplay between home and host. Importantly, Baba's concept of hybridity as articulating between dominant and marginal discourses long associated with diasporas and other forms of post-colonial cultural contact opens up a third space for cultural strategies to become active forms of resistance to domination and marginalization. To simply assume this kind of role for hybrid cultural activity, however, risks the stance of postmodernist celebration for its own sake of the subject in process. Yet, in the context of this book, the most appropriate revision of all of the concept of culture comes from James Clifford, who proposes that in order to focus on hybrid cosmopolitan experiences as much as on rooted native ones, in a world of people in flux, we rethink culture and its science, anthropology, in terms of travel. Thus, instead of the traditional trope of culture being an organic outgrowth of a particular place, the motif of travel can incorporate all those forms of movement experienced by people today, which take them or keep them away from their real or putative place of origin. Even if they are not all traveling in the same class, Clifford's shifting of the concept of culture away from roots and toward roots, or routes instead, endows it with a more flexible way to deal with the many kinds of floating lives which characterize our times.